Hello, my name is Ran, and this is the Flow Artist Podcast. Every episode, we speak with inspiring movers, thinkers, and teachers about how they find their flow and much, much more. I'd like to start by honoring the traditional owners of the land where this episode was recorded, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and pay our respects to elders past, present, and emerging. We also want to send our best wishes out to you, the listener. This lockdown has been tough with a lot of uncertainty, which can really take a toll on mental health. We certainly had a lot of questions for our guest today, Chris Cheers. Chris is a psychologist and educator who's passionate about creating accessible, accepting and safe spaces where people become empowered to reach their life goals. He's also dedicated to increasing community education around mental health. He draws on his lived experience within the arts and the LGBTQI plus communities to provide mental health support within these communities, but also to share these insights and create resources beyond the one-on-one therapeutic model. It was actually through Chris's Instagram that we discovered his work. He's able to distill some deep and helpful insights into a succinct message that is easy for people to access. We were grateful for the chance to expand upon some of these insights and ask our own questions around lockdown and reopening. We really enjoyed this conversation and hope that you'll also find it helpful. All right, Chris, thank you so much for speaking with us today. It's so great to get the chance to speak with you. I'd just like to start, perhaps you'd like to share a little bit about your background and what drew you to the work that you do today. Sure. Um, Great to be here. So my story starts, I guess, back at university, really, where I started studying. I studied medical science to become, I was going to be a doctor was my sort of plan, but that didn't quite happen. And I had a bit of a mid-degree crisis, as I call it, and went and studied arts for a year. So I studied philosophy and sociology and performance studies. And I started discovering the arts, started acting very poorly at a university dramatic society, and at the same time found psychology. And I found psychology really put together what I was searching for, which is putting the arts and the sciences sort of together. And then fast forward many years of study, I eventually became a psychologist. And I think, like many early career psychologists, kind of tried to put myself to the side and sort of be a bit of a blank canvas sort of psychologist. And as I worked more and more in the industry, I started realizing how much bringing myself into the practice was actually really useful uh, to making certain communities feel accepted and connected to me. So, you know, I'm a, a cisgendered male, but I'm a queer man. So I bringing queerness into the space and uh, that lived experience I found really helpful for for uh, the LGBTIQ community and then bringing my arts background and my I spent many years working in the arts organizations so I worked for Melbourne Fringe and the festivals and was on the festival circuit and so bringing that understanding together with my psychology understanding I found has yeah really led me to where I am today helping both the LGBTIQ community and the arts community in their mental health and well-being. Yeah, I noticed on your website, actually, that you did quite a few different workshops focusing on mental health in the arts, which was already a pretty, I guess, unstable career path in terms of money before COVID. And I could only imagine now even more so. And one of the things that really stood out to me with your Instagram posts was how much you were sharing from your own heart and 
while there is a lot of self-care advice online, often it's kind of like a quick little quote or a platitude and your posts are still quite brief, but you really get into some deeper territory and it's a lot more focused on feeling into the emotions as they unfold. Would you like to share a little bit about your writing process and how you've gone from something that might have filled a workshop into four little slide across screens on Instagram? (laughs) Absolutely. I think when I first started thinking about the Instagram, I wanted it to be like a mini therapy session is how I came to it. Because I think I saw a lot of what I put in the world of sort of platitudes and quotes out there on Instagram in the kind of self-care space, which, you know, certainly some people find very helpful, but sometimes I think people share them or look at them and then kind of move on. And maybe they don't cause an impact or cause that person to change their behavior, which in the end is is what changes your life. So in terms of my writing process, I thought about, well, what does a therapy session tend to do? And it tends to normalize what people are going through. It tends to evoke some sort of emotional experience, and then it presents strategies. And I think I go back to my, I guess, performance studies and arts background, where I really believe in the power of aesthetic force and the power of art to change minds, because it often is the thing that's evoking emotion. And when you're, that emotional shift is often the time where you'll also make the decision to change your behavior. So as you look through the quotes, you'll, uh, the, my Instagram post, you'll see a bit of a process of normalizing what people are going through and being in the unique opportunity of being in lockdown and being a psychologist. It's not common that we're going through the same thing as our clients, but in this case, I am. And like so many Australians have, have been in lockdown for a long time. So I could normalize it by putting myself into it, saying I'm there with you. And then I could give those strategies at the end. I think once people are ready to hear them after I've really normalized and empathized with the experience. And how much of it is about the creative process for you? Like, are you working through your own feelings as you're expressing them? Or is it more that you've kind of come to a place of embodied understanding, I guess, before you feel ready to share? No, I, I joke that when I'm having a bad day, I write a post to help me help me make it through. <laughs> and some of the, the more popular ones have really been that, like basically me saying, you know, I'm having a low day or this is really hard. And, you know, coming from that place of normally, you know, when I'm having a bad day, I might jump for the chocolate or the wine or the Netflix or just kind of tune out. But then I eventually... It's almost annoying having a understanding of psychology sometimes because I know what I'm meant to do, yeah. <laughs> I know what I need to do, and I eventually do come come into it. But you know, I'm human like anyone else, so I have to go through that process as well of you know first wanting to escape and control and get rid of my emotions, but then realizing I have to do something to process them, and I have to do the often uncomfortable thing, which is actually what looking after yourself sometimes is. So I think I. Yeah, I process that sometimes through these posts. I, I normally process it in a very long post and then I edit it, obviously, <laughs> and, and make it a bit more uh, readable and useful. Yeah, that's one of the things that I've really got from your posts as well. It's not self-care like have a bubble bath. It's self-care like do the inner work and set boundaries and do the hard stuff that's going to make you feel better long term. Absolutely. And I think this time, you know, obviously lockdowns and COVID has been extremely challenging, um, you know, so many in the community, especially the arts community and the queer communities where I work. But I think it has, in another way, given a space sometimes for people to either they were, have been pushed to do the work because of, you know, they were dealing with mental health 
issues that in response to this that they maybe haven't dealt with before, or some people have been forced to take space from their everyday grind or from other things that may be taking their time and energy. And it's it's given this very interesting space, I think, where people maybe are, are pushed to do some work and, and hopefully, yeah, my post can encourage that work and, and that naming that it is hard, but it, but it is useful. And it's one of the things that I really took from your post about like a message to performing artists in crisis, because one of the things that you touch on is how when what someone does, whether it's creating art or performing, or even I think teaching yoga fits into this as well. It's not just something that you do, but it's really part of who you are. And so losing the ability to do this in the way that you used to, like it really hits hard and really deep. Would you like to share some thoughts on navigating this new reality? Absolutely. In terms of identity, I think my studies were in education developmental psychology originally. So I have studied a lot in terms of development of, you know, how we come to ourselves, how, how do we develop an identity, which is a really complex idea. And I first started studying that in terms of developing gender identity, especially because I work a lot with the trans and gender diverse community. But working with the arts community, I started realizing and creatives community identity is such an important part of understanding that experience as well, because often your work and yourself become quite enmeshed at some point along, along the line. You know, sometimes in high school, it's you're the, you start being called like the actor or you're going to be the singer or later in your life, you were surrounded by sort of communities that, that put this pressure on, you know, you are an artist and there's no plan B and, you know, that, that's who you are and there's nothing else you could possibly be, which can be all beautiful, passionate, motivating ideas. But when you can't do that work, it becomes really challenging because, you know, who are you if, you, if you're not doing this thing that you're saying is, is who you are? So I spend a lot of time with clients and trying to write about and understand how we can see the arts and your creative work as a really important part of you, but not all of you. And how do you think about the other domains of your life and how can you define your values, what's meaningful to you, and how can you enact those values through the arts, but know that there's many other domains in your life where you can enact who you are and what's important to you as well. And it's a kind of a controversial thing to say, but to say that the the arts is something you do, it's not who you are is I think at, at once a really confronting and challenging question, but I think a really useful question uh, for people who want to maintain a sense of stability and mental health and well-being in the arts or the creative industry, which at its core is uncertain and and really difficult. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's another layer to this as well, where there's this idea to that to create good art, you've really got to share authentically and honestly and like that's part of it. But also just from what you've said, if someone's being told that to be a good artist, you have to put your all into your art. It's like, how do you have anything left to have healthy relationships or even a healthy relationship to yourself? And like, I guess that's why there's a lot of substance abuse or just a lot of not really taking care of yourself in the arts community, because it's almost like that's fed to you as this is how you be a good artist. You just sacrifice everything else. Absolutely. That myth of the tortured artist is, is as real today as it has been throughout history. That sense of that you put your all into it and your life depends on it. And you're putting so much of yourself into your work, which obviously is really useful in many ways and to connect a community and for people to, 
to have their minds changed by art is, is from that authenticity that so many artists show. But at the same time, you know, you can't, your life can't depend on this one thing when so much of it is out of your control. And I think that's another way to think about it is, you know, putting so much time and energy into the arts and the creative industries is, is wonderful as long as you're really aware of which parts are in your control and which parts are not. And if you can put all your time and energy and, and your passion and your meaning into these and, and your value, I guess, as is some, is another way to think about it is if your work and your identity become enmeshed, at some point, your success as an artist becomes how you view yourself and how you view your self-worth. And I think that's the thing that, that I really try and challenge is, is artists and creatives is knowing that you can choose how you judge your self-worth. You know, there's, there's no prerequisites on worthiness that you don't have to have success in this industry in whatever way you think it has to look to, to have worth. And you can really think about you know, your life and your relationships and, and all the domains of your life and how you are living with meaning within those domains and let that be the judgment of, of how you view your worth rather than torturing yourself to, to work really hard in something that perhaps is not in your control. Yeah, especially since you can put your all into it and you have no say in the response that it will get or if even anyone will even notice, which is a reality in the arts as well. Absolutely. And we, we sort of, it's this hard tension between obviously working hard, you know, is what you should do to strive to be better. But I think there's, there's so much of that success that's out of your control. And I go back to the work, uh, Dr. Sarah Lewis wrote a book called The Rise, which is about creativity and failure and this quest for mastery. And she talks really beautifully about the difference between success and mastery in how we can have perspectives as creatives and artists. And success are those little achievements along the way, which can feel good in the moment, we can strive for them. But when they fail, it's really important to try and view the bigger picture as you want to quest for mastery of your work or mastery of whatever you've defined as meaningful to you in your life. And those little failures or successes along the way really need to be viewed as this often part that you're not in control of that happens along the way to this really curved long-term line towards your mastery. And I think that could be a useful way also to to try and pivot away from that focus on on goals and success that are often outside of your control as an artist. Wow, that just seems like such a parallel as well towards a yoga practice where the idea is it's this practice that you live through your whole life and get a deeper understanding of yourself and of the world and of your relationships and like the little wins along the way, like your perfect handstand moment (laughs) or even just in meditation where you just have an amazing meditation where you just feel completely connected to the universe and then the next day you can't focus even for a couple of breaths. It's like you've got those little wins along the way, but that's not actually the power of the practice and that's not what's going to keep you on track and coming back to it on the hard days. That's so beautiful. And even just the reference to it as a practice, I've always found so beautiful about yoga. You know, it's something, it's not just something you know, you know, you do for, you know, an hour a day or it's, it's something that you practice and, and it, it is an ongoing ongoing kind of journey it's it's not something you should view as, as something you do on the way to i don't know weight loss or changing your body shape or improving your strength that it, that is a, a practice is something that i've come to appreciate with my my small amount of experience <laughs> with yoga oh it sounds like you 
uh, practicing yoga in a lot of ways through your writing and through your psychology practice as well. And the nice thing about it is often even if you do come to it for a health reason or a fitness reason or just like I want to be able to sleep at night, you do get to those deeper layers over time anyway as you kind of, as it unfolds. Absolutely. Those little wins, I think, are really beautiful, but they should be seen sort of as a byproduct on the way. It's it's sort of the same way that we view happiness, I guess, within within my work as a psychologist. It's if, if you're coming to a psychologist to be happy, it, that often leads to a lot of frustration because we can't control our emotions. If, you know, for example, if there's a global pandemic on you, and you're not happy, that makes sense. So, what we really try to do is try to help people identify what's meaningful in your life. How can you live by those values and know that happiness is still going to happen? A reduction in anxiety is still going to happen whilst you are in pursuit of that. But that's a byproduct to the true thing, which is, you know, living a life of meaning and taking on board all the uncomfortable, challenging emotions that are a natural part of trying to do that. And speaking of uncomfortable, challenging emotions, another Instagram post of yours that I really got a lot out of was your notes from a psychologist trying to find their way through a lockdown low day. And I'd love to hear the things that you find helpful in a little short-term way and then in a broader, big-picture way. I think in the short-term on my low days, I've come to go back to the ideas of what we call emotional agility which is that capacity to look to your emotions with curiosity and compassion and openness rather than what we often do in life, which is to try and see our emotions as something that are kind of like meaningless that we need to get rid of or control. So on my lockdown low days, which <laughs> certainly happen quite a lot, I now try and first just come from a place of checking with my body and really labeling and naming you know what my emotional experiences i'm having in that moment and then asking myself the question of why does this make sense why is this okay that i'm feeling like this why is this a normal response to this situation and that doesn't make that emotion go away you know but it does give it give it meaning in that moment and it allows me to ha have it with curiosity and allow space for it as i then continue with the day and sometimes that that sort of identification of the the emotion in, in my body, I'm reminded of the idea that emotions are body experiences. They're physiological experiences. It's a neurological system that we're meant to have that signposts about our environment. So the other thing I ask of that emotion and that physical experience is what is it asking for? What is my emotion telling me about my environment or telling me about what I need right now? And normally on low days, if I'm feeling stressed or tense, it's asking me to, you know, do something that is either, you know, if I'm feeling stressed, I want to complete that stress cycle and do something physical like vigorous or some sort of exercise or walk something to, to kind of get that stress kind of out of the body. But other times it's telling me to rest and telling me that it's, you know, to just take the day off and, and stay in bed. Other times it's telling me to, you know, to eat or sometimes it's telling me that I need to, have a meditation and, and chill. And I think there's so much in self-care that is external that we're kind of told what self-care should look like or the expectations of what self-care should be. And I always try and encourage in myself and in others, you are the expert in what you need. And so return to your body on those low days 
and and listen to what the emotions are, are asking for and try and do that. That's uh, a really great philosophy and such a simple and powerful message. Mm, beautiful. And to change the topic slightly, but I know this is something Joe and I have talked about a bit, but I guess we're we're in this conundrum of wanting lockdown to end, but also being a bit anxious about opening up again, especially when there's probably still going to be active cases of COVID in the community, which is, you know, a, a bit of a different situation to previous lockdowns. Do you have any suggestions for navigating this? Yeah, it's going to be challenging. So my first suggestion would be to be kind to yourself and others as we try and do this, because no one knows how to do this. I don't know how to do this, but I'll I'll give it my best shot to to (laughs) suggest what I think is going to happen. I, based on what I've read about in, in other countries in response to this, because you're quite right when you say that this will be different to, you know, especially previously in Melbourne, where we've kind of had this opening up and the kind of joy of that and and the risk of COVID has been very low in the community during those times. So what was I, I was working mostly with clients back then about kind of their social anxiety going back into spaces that they haven't, you know, been allowed to be in for, for so long. And we know that anxiety tends to breed and tends to grow through avoidance. So when we've been forced to avoid situations for a long time, it makes sense that some of those previously fine environments will now be anxiety provoking. But and on top of that, social anxiety that I think will come with this will be that that you know normal fear of, of COVID because it now is in the community. And everyone is going to have very different experiences at this time. And so to try and create openness and understanding and don't assume anything about anyone's experience, you know, so simple things like the idea of vaccines, you know, we really need to understand that there are different reasons from anything from medical reasons to others that that mean that people can't be vaccinated, even if they would want to. And so that assumption that everyone should be vaxxed is is something that we kind of need to not just assume that we understand everyone's experience. So how I would talk about navigating the space is, I think, understanding that this is going to be a real for some people this is going to be a really positive experience they're going to love being back out there again and and maybe they're going to relish and really want this you know as in the UK called it like a freedom day and I think we all want that we all want this to end but what we've learned through how people in the US experienced their sort of opening up was there wasn't a moment where this ended. It will be uncertain for much longer now. And the sooner we can start to grapple with that, how do we sit with that uncertainty? How do we sit with those fears? How do we support each other in those fears? Rather than just look forward to this day when it will all be over, I think will will be the really important process that we all need to do at some point. So I guess I would invite people to really try and tune out of that really normal urge for it to just be over and to understand that life will be different now. Life will be uncertain now. Everyone's experience of this is different. And this is going to be a really challenging time rather than just a really happy sort of opening up time. Yeah. And just to return to what you were saying about the vaccines, from the experiences that I've seen in different countries, like I know in, say, Europe, there are a lot of places that require a vaccine passport. And 
that causes a whole lot of different emotions to come up for me because I know like we're both vaccinated. I'm still waiting for my second dose. I know there are people in my community who are at a really high risk. So I want to do everything that I can to keep them safe. Like in our yoga studio community, there are other people in the yoga community who are very anti-vaccine. And there are people like you mentioned who have a medical reason where it's not going to be a possibility. And as a business owner, I'm kind of going to be this gatekeeper if the government does have some kind of a mandate that you'll have to be vaccinated to enter a certain space. And they never mention the people who have a medical reason why that's not a possibility. And I don't really feel like I'm emotionally equipped to be this like, not a police presence, but a doorkeeper to the studio when all I want to do is welcome people in and keep people safe. It's like a really kind of, it's one of the things that's giving me anxiety thinking about reopening. Absolutely. And that's a really normal response to this kind of uncertain space. And, you know, your version of it will be sitting with that kind of gatekeeper position and having to make decisions to you know, let people in or not, and and other people's experience will be different versions of that because we're having to navigate this different world where there is this, you know, I think sometimes we forget that this is an invisible, you know, virus that's a global pandemic. Like it's the kind of stuff we saw in movies that is now here. And I think in Australia, we haven't really experienced what a lot of other countries have experienced in their waves of really being feeling like it is in the community at large and feeling like the risk to us is is real. I think we've spent a lot of time maybe feeling about the risks of lockdowns and the risks of restrictions. And some communities certainly have been dealing with the risk of COVID over the last year. But as a general population, I think that's the, that's the phase we're about to go into. And yeah, I, the, I guess the only advice would be to, I, I go back to what's my role here? My role as a psychologist and what I can say is that, you know, if you are making, it's it's about the different hats you might put on. So you might be putting on the hat of a compassionate, kind friend to some people, but then you'll be putting on the hat of a business owner where it's your job to perhaps keep people safe. And only you can make that decision based on all, whatever information you can at the time. But there is no kind of right or wrong anymore. There's no black or white kind of decision about this because it is uncertain. So I think the only thing you can do is is consult with a community to listen, to make a decision, to communicate that clearly, and then evaluate as it goes because there's no rule book here. We don't know what we're doing. So, And in those times, the only thing we can do is make the best decision we can at the time and evaluate how it's going and give and be kind to ourselves as we try and do this really difficult thing to navigate these, you know, previously impossible to even consider spaces. Yeah. Another thing I have been trying to do, this was more about masks because that's the what we've dealt with up until here, vaccines haven't really been a thing, is do as much of my communication as I can up front before the person arrives. (laughs) So in all of our website, all of our emails, all of their confirmation, just be super clear on what our policies are with masks, which is really just what the government is saying, just passing that on and trying to make it so that people are pre-informed about what expectations are and, you know, the guidelines that we're setting at our studio to help keep our community safe. Absolutely. Boundaries and clear communication will be so important as we navigate these spaces now because there won't be a common understanding of any of this. So it will be up to everyone to 
yeah, to communicate clearly their boundaries and to know that some that their boundaries are theirs and as they can communicate and they can communicate when those boundaries are crossed. But I think there's another part of this that is, I guess, navigating the difference between individual risk and also the community risk. And I think that's also where you're going to see some more emotionally charged and challenging sort of conversations um, because naturally in a time of fear, so uh, in stress, our threat response turns on in our body, which is our, you know, it's, you know, it's kind of, I like to call it kind of the dumbest system of your nervous system because <laughs> it, it just, once you perceive a threat, it's on and then your body is ready to fight, fight or flee and, and that's it. It doesn't really listen to logic. The part of your brain that, you know, deals well with logic and rational thinking is gone. The cortisol has has ruined it, destroyed it in those moments. So when you're in that threat and fear response, you just go into a place of protection rather than connection. And unfortunately, that place of protection is going to focus on your individual needs and your individual risk. And that's going to be the challenging space is how do we all learn to regulate our nervous systems to stay sort of calm and rational? Because this is going to have to be a time when we all come out from perhaps being focused on our individual risk and, and being forced into lockdowns in our own, our, lo- our own lives. And how can we regulate our nervous systems to rationally realize that this is a time when we're going to have to come together. And sometimes that will mean you doing something for the community and not just, you know, in navigating your own risk. And I think that, sort of difficult, challenging, uncomfortable space is is what we're about to see played out in in many different arenas over the next year. Yeah, like I've definitely been having the experience at the moment where if someone is saying something that I don't like online and I don't feel like I want to confront them about it because I don't have the mental energy for that and I'm not a very confrontational person anyway, it's pretty easy to unfollow someone on Facebook and then as spaces open up, it's going to be a much more face-to-face experience and I guess navigating how much energy you want to put into expressing your point of view when it's different to someone else's and when there's a community care and community safety element to it all versus, oh, am I just feeling agitated and fighty today because I'm stressed? Like it's so multi-layered and (laughs) complicated. (laughs) And that's why I think the individual responsibility is to do the work to be able to know and notice when your body is in that kind of fight or flight freeze sort of response and do what you can through, you know, breathing and exercise and, and meditations and to, to learn to ground and, and regulate your own system so that you can make the choices that you, you think rationally are, are the right ones to make. And I think when I sit in my rational space, my sort of grounded space, I also think very much about all the different communities right now that are at more, you know, at high risk of COVID and have lower vaccination rates, not due to their own, due fault of their own, but due to how the vaccine has been delivered. You know, I think the COVID has really seen a increase in the kind of the gaps and has really exacerbated the gaps we have both in our mental health care system, but also just generally in society and inequalities. And we know, you know, for example, Aboriginal communities are, are, are vaccinated less, again, not due to their fault of their own, but due to how this has been distributed. And, you know, throughout Australia, we're seeing that divide in cities between, you know, lower socioeconomic areas and high socioeconomic areas. 
in terms of vaccine. And so I think when I see this kind of targets towards 70 and 80%, you know, we're not capturing what's underneath that, which may be that some communities are at high risk and they're the communities that you wearing your mask and you keeping to restrictions and you getting vaccinated they're the ones that that your those actions are going to help as well because this is about us coming together and at a time when we're all feeling very divided it's it's going to be a process of doing our own individual work i think to be able to then come together as a community hi it's joe here and if the last couple of years have shown being adaptable and creating autonomy within your yoga business has never been more important. However, creating a website from scratch can be a very expensive and daunting proposition, especially when you combine it with creating a booking system, mailing list and managing online payments and sending out Zoom reminders for all your online classes. I did a lot of research for our mentoring clients to find the best value and easiest to use package, which is also supports tiered pricing, donation-based classes, and was accessible and understandable for new teachers who aren't super comfortable with technology. We recommend Offering Tree, and we're now Offering Tree ambassadors. Use our link, offeringtree.com slash flowartists, to get one month free or 15% off an annual plan. The Essentials plan's only $22 US per month at the time of recording this and includes everything that you need as a new teacher building your yoga business. We'll pop the link in the show notes for you. And I'd really love to ask you now about lessons from the LGBTQI plus community because they, as a community, have dealt with the devastation of the AIDS epidemic and also of healthcare as a political issue and activism and education being a major focus for a lot of people within that community. Have you noticed a different response from within the queer community to COVID? And is there wisdom from within this community that you'd like to see reach a broader audience? I think so. I mean, you know, we as queers often say we stand on the shoulders of giants when it comes to the work and the activism, especially in the, you know, that AIDS and HIV space. And I think something that was learnt through that pandemic that unfortunately I don't think has been learnt by governments, but was certainly seen in our communities for in through history that often the the, the view of a government and those kind of structures is to go towards policing and go towards turning a public health crisis into a political and a policing situation. And that generally goes down to this belief that if you can, you can guilt and shame people into changing their behaviour, which is something we know through psychological research to just be untrue. If you if you make someone feel shame for something that they're doing, the feeling of shame is not motivating to make a change. It's not motivating to do something for the community. It tends to put people into a place of attack and defense and doing things for themselves as an individual. So the alternative to that, that we we eventually saw in some jurisdictions um, across the world in response to the, the AIDS crisis was seeing this as a public health crisis and coming from a place of empathy and compassion and understanding and working with the community to and that's the place you make a change. That That's the place you get a community on board so that they, as a community, can take the right action to try and change a public health crisis. And 
we've seen that time and time again in, in queer communities where the community coming together to look after each other and also to take the right action. You know, we've obviously seen HIV, AIDS, the rates just drop incredibly in, in Australia due to the work not only of activists of the past, but also to us all, a lot of queer men especially, are taking PrEP every day or when they need to, which is basically a drug you take to prevent you getting HIV and all the sacrifice that, that HIV and AIDS, you know, people living with HIV and AIDS have the sacrifice they've made in the past to take drugs that are experimental that had devastating consequences for some people. But through that, we learned which drugs work. And now you're at a beautiful place where about 95% of, of people living with AIDS or HIV take medication that gets their viral load to something we call undetectable, which means they can't place, place you know, they can't give HIV to anyone else. So those are just two examples of a community coming together and making the sacrifice and because they knew it was for something greater. And I think that's the kind of energy we could learn from and try and approach COVID with now. How, how does a government actually work with a community to come together so that we all feel like we're working towards a common goal and a common good? Because right now it's feeling very divided and that is not a time where people tend to want to make self-sacrifice for the sake of a community. Yeah, like I'm seeing examples in Sydney where the government hasn't even made an effort to translate necessary information into the languages that the community understand and then a few community leaders kind of stepping up and taking on that responsibility of translating that information and making announcements and kind of explaining things so that their community can feel safe with vaccinations or even just understanding the lockdown rules. Yeah, and that working with community is something we see time and time again that there's this assumption sometimes, especially from, you know, white Australians, that the structures that we have equal and equally accessible to people, like hospitals and all the existing services. And so let's just kind of put the vaccines in those existing spaces. But sometimes these spaces are anything from harmful to anxiety provoking to trauma triggering for people from other minority communities because of their experiences in those spaces and so when you see yeah i've joined you i've heard about you know community leaders within both melbourne and in in sydney who are, are coming forward to set up vaccine hotspots in their community right there in the community talking to the community working with the community and that's when you see the vaccine rates change and it doesn't change just from, you know, putting, you know, telling people to come into a hospital and putting it in English language on television and Facebook and just telling them to come and do it and trying to guilt them in this in this kind of idea of, you know, we're in this together, let, let's do this. And that, that old idea goes through that, that, you know, we're all in the same storm right now, but we're in different boats. And I think we really kind of need to acknowledge and look around and think about what boat we're in and what boat other people are in if we're going to try and get through this together. And so I guess that leads me to a a mental health question. And I saw on your own website that you're fully booked right now for one-on-one sessions and not even room on your waiting list. For people who are looking for support with their mental health and struggling to find a psychologist, is there an easy referral network? Like I've seen people sharing on Facebook about it. Like does anyone know somewhere nearby with free appointments? Is there a way that people can access this support 
that doesn't involve a lot of phone calls to dead ends? The simple answer is no. It's not easy in Australia to access a psychologist because our mental health system has, you know, long before COVID was inequitable and challenging and not adequate. And But that's the bad news. The good news, I would say, is that is recognising that in Australia, we, we're a bit stuck in this system that if you are in kind of having mental health issues or wellbeing issues, that you should see a GP and you should see a psychologist, that that's the only avenue for help. And it's, it's wonderful that, that that avenue has become destigmatised and a lot more people are accessing it. The issue, though, is obviously it, it's quite expensive for many people to see the GP and then a lot of psychologists, even if you get a mental health care plan from your GP, the psychologist will charge a gap and some people can't afford that, let alone finding a psychologist that even has space available right now. So I guess the strategies I would give is opening up and thinking about what kind of help might be useful to you right now while you're waiting for a psychologist or maybe alternatively to a psychologist. So for example, as Psychology Today is a website that lists a lot of therapists, counsellors, social workers, and, and other mental health professionals that may be able to offer you support right now. And also list psychologists that, that you may be able to find support right now. But it's great to, I think, try a varied kind of approach to this and see if it works for you. You know, if you go and see a, a counsellor or therapist or, or do an online therapy or an online counselling, it might not work for you and you might end up needing to see a psychologist anyway. But if you're on a waiting list already, what you're doing in that time while you're waiting for one, I think is a, is a, is a helpful focus to have. The, the other point I'd make is keeping in mind that there's a lot of online therapy now in, that is free. So online sort of CBT programs, online therapists, some where you're actually talking to a therapist, some that are just sort of online mental health programs that are incredibly helpful as well and have been shown through evidence to be just as helpful as seeing a psychologist when it comes to things like stress, depression and anxiety. Because in the end, the changes you need to make to your life are behavioural changes that you are in charge of, that you will make, and that's what proves your mental health care. Seeing a psychologist for you know one hour a fortnight does not make the change. It's, it's the, that helps you understand and supports you to make the own change in your life. And so trying to think about family supports, online supports, counsellors, therapists, the huge amount of community support networks, there's lots of different support out there that you can perhaps seek rather than just sort of waiting for this psychologist that may at at the moment, unfortunately, not be accessible or, or, you know, have quite a long waiting list. I would just add, if if you're thinking about other searches, so the Australian Psychological Society has a Find My Psychologist area where you can try and search for a psychologist as well. And both those, and there's also on my website, I've got a a space where you can, uh, that helps you try and find a psychologist. And it links to quite a few other clinics and quite a few other search. There's a Victorian Inclusive Practitioners Network that lists a whole lot of different practitioners who work more with the queer and the trans and the gender diverse communities. So there's a database of that. And there's also some other databases there on psychologists who work more with people of colour and and other minority groups. Yeah, there there are networks and and databases out there right now. But the reality is, unfortunately, a lot of psychologists are, are full up. And it's really challenging right now. 
Yeah, I um, will definitely link to the resources that you just listed. And another one that I just remembered while you were talking, which I've seen online, is actually a service that you can text to rather than phone up. The idea being that if you're in the middle of a crisis, talking to a stranger might be harder than sending a text message. Absolutely. There's so many alternate online uh, chat and, and spaces right now that are that are really out there that aren't really well sort of publicised and aren't really well known about. So a government website, Head to Health, has lists a whole lot of these online services that are all evidence-based and really great services that you can search for. And yeah, as you mentioned, there's different chat services and, and the online counselling and therapy space is a really huge growing space. And I think one of the advantages of COVID for mental health is it has pushed us all to telehealth as psychologists. We kind of, we're, we're pulled kind of running and screaming in some ways, but we obviously it was a way for us to continue to support the community. So we were happy to take it up. And it's forced a lot of us into these online spaces that maybe previously we haven't been been doing. So I I think, yeah, I think questioning this model, this medical model we have of mental health care in Australia of seeing a GP and seeing a psychologist as the only way, I think is something worth worth challenging at times like this and and thinking about what it, what else is on that smorgasbord of of support that that you can reach out for right now, and but I'd add a certain thing that we also need to improve and change that broken mental health care model, and which comes from having more psychologists and also making psychology free for all Australians. Yeah, there's some good points there, and I'm just sort of curious when when it does come to speaking with a psychologist or a counsellor, do you think it's sort of important to share? say, a, a common perspective or, or worldview with the psychologist? Or do you think the, the training the psychologist has would sort of, I don't know, help cover that? It's interesting. When I f- first started out, I think based on my education and, and my early career, I did have that idea that, you know, we as psychologists, we practice evidence-based care. And so it doesn't matter who we are and who our lived experience is. We we have, you know, following our evidence-based model and that's the care we're providing and that will be helpful. But as I've, I think, worked in this industry for longer and worked with a lot more clients in times of crisis and need, there is a really important part of therapy that is about the therapeutic alliance or the relationship between the client and the psychologist. And, you know, if we go back to you know, Carl Rogers, who's kind of like the, the grandfather of counselling, would say that that relationship is based on empathy, showing understanding, and it's also based on congruence, which is the ability for the psychologist to to be themselves, to have authenticity, to say what's on their mind, and on the idea of unconditional positive regard. And I think the more that I've brought my lived experience into the space, the more people can feel accepted and trusting and understood within that therapeutic relationship, which I think much more now as the foundation on which then you use your evidence-based practice. But I think it is a necessary and important foundation and first step that that you need to feel with a psychologist. And, you know, I always invite my friends, if they're seeing a psychologist they don't like, is go back, go back twice, just have two sessions. And if you're not feeling it, in the second session, if you're feeling up to it, maybe even talk about what you're, that you're not feeling connected or what you're feeling in that space. And your psychologist's response to that question will be the thing that will actually really decide, I think, whether this is the person for you or not. But 
try and have those two sessions, I think, can be a really good space to see if you're feeling connected. But if you're not after that time, then do try to seek, I think, a psychologist that you know something about their lived experience that connects with you. And because for a lot of people, that is a really helpful part of part of the, the helping process. I've seen a couple of response sharings from women of colour online where they're talking about seeing a white psychologist and how they've ended up making their white, like reassuring their white psychologist who are so disturbed about the things that have happened to them that they're the ones in tears during the session. And it's just like, oh my gosh, like you're showing up to the person and you're consoling them about the stuff that happened to you. It seems like if someone's from a really different lived experience, it's like there would be so much more talking and explanation and getting to know what all of that means just to get to the point where you can actually start on working with the actual issues. Absolutely. And, you know, that can be, you know, really harmful for some communities who go into these spaces and then based on the medical practitioner or psychologist response, it can be quite traumatizing and, and, and challenging. And, a clinic called Polar Psychology is, you can search online, is doing incredible work in this space and to try and, you know, find practitioners and clinics that are, you know, have uh, either psychologists who are people of colour or uh, have a great understanding and, and connection with that community because you want to make sure those spaces are safe. And sometimes you need to, you know, have have someone who has your lived experience to make you feel safe in those spaces. And I think I experience it as a, you know, as I said, I'm a, a queer man and, and that experience and lived experience is so, for my queer and trans and gender diverse clients, they talk about with other psychologists who don't have that experience, having to explain everything all the time and, and feeling a, a judgment from psychologists sometimes or, and whether the psychologist is doing it purposefully or not, it doesn't really matter if, because we as psychologists don't get to leave ourselves at the door when we walk in and, and sit in that room and be a psychologist. And and unfortunately, a lot of psychologists have are white in Australia, have that lived experience and only that lived experience because it's quite a privileged, high socioeconomic thing to be able to afford to study. It's talking six years of study. And, you know, I, I lecture in, in psychology, have done for the last 10 years. I, I know that the graduates coming through all have very similar lived experience and all look very similar. And the, we need to sort of change the way that we teach psychology to, to allow us to educate psychologists from different lived experience and different cultures to begin with. But secondly, we as psychologists need to understand that the practice itself of psychology is it's theoretically and historically white and Western and that individualistic understanding of, of mental health that sees your mental illness as lying within you as an individual and puts responsible on you to fix your diagnosis is so different to other understandings of mental health that would focus on community and focus on looking at what the society and what's around you that might be contributing to your mental health issues or well-being and, and how we can work with the community in those structures to improve mental health as well. So I think there's a huge, you brought a huge question and issue in there that I think is so important for us to think about. It's not just about getting more psychologists in Australia. It's about really thinking about how we educate them and, and what kind of psychologists and, and hopefully that there are psychologists out there that are as diverse as the population that we're trying to help. I guess there's even some perceptions within different cultures as well. Like 
that you have to be strong within yourself and not get help outside of yourself. And so hopefully getting more and more psychologists and mental health professionals from diverse backgrounds will normalize that experience of getting help and not having to like shoulder it all on your own because it's a sign of weakness or it's a sign of, I'm not sure, like I'm not speaking from my own lived experience here, more just what I've seen in movies and on TV about perceptions about seeking help. Yeah, I see it. I mean, I see that in, in I guess, men in Australia. You know, obviously there's other that stepping outside and seeking help and talking about your emotions. So again, having more, you know, psychologists that can speak you know, to that experience and connect more with young men, especially, you know, I think, you know, obviously have a really high risk of of suicide and mental health difficulties, but often other people who are least likely to seek help. So I think, yeah, getting more psychologists in that space, but also, you know, other cultures where it is, you know, it is wrong to speak outside of your family about the issues of your family in many cultures. And we have a very individualistic idea of that in kind of white Western ideologies of mental health, that it's like, you should sit down and tell me all your secrets about your family, about your past, about everyone. Tell me a stranger or everything about your life because I'm a psychologist. There's a very kind of medical way to see mental health care. Whereas I think we need to have, yeah, more diversity in, in mental health practitioners, psychologists, so they can understand how other cultures operate and what what they're working with and how do you work and support someone who the idea of stepping outside of your family and telling the secrets of the family is something that should never be done because an individual idea of mental health care does not work for that culture and and so we need to listen and think about other ways to support mental health and well-being rather than just kind of this one vanilla cookie cutter approach that that often we see in psychologists in Australia I think in New Zealand, I think I saw, I read something that less than 5% of psychologists are Māori and Māori make up a bit over 10% of the population. So there's you know, obviously a bit of a disconnect there. And I would say, I don't have the stats in front of me, but I would say it's probably even worse in Australia for Aboriginal practitioners. It's just there, I think the last that I saw, there was only around, around 200, I think, Aboriginal psychologists in Australia. And, you know, some people are are trying to do great work in this space to try and train and and change that. But it's, yeah, certainly something that is not just Australia. Obviously, a lot of countries and issues in kind of reconciliation with First Nation populations are meaning that those inequalities are certainly shown through, through the mental health care system as well as so many other structures and systems in society. Mm -hmm. I'd just like to briefly go back to that point you raised earlier about shame not being an effective motivator. And, you know, I know even though I'm I'm vaccinated, I believe everyone should be vaccinated, I do feel that people who are unvaccinated or do are vaccine hesitant, we do tend to throw a lot of shame their way. This might not be an easy question to answer, but how do you think we could navigate that? It's helpful this time sometimes I think about the work of Brene Brown in the shame space and she defines very clearly between shame and guilt. So guilt is something that's focused on a behaviour. So you've done something bad or the behaviour was bad and you feel bad about that and shame is that belief that I am bad. And we know that guilt can be a good motivator for a change in behaviour. So if you do focus on the behavior and that why that 
you know, why not getting vaccinated, how that impacts the community, what and kind of the educa- education around that and, and navigating the risks around that. And, you know, not assuming that people have the understandings or have had access to the education sometimes with this. And so if you can focus it on that specific behaviour, that's what I would, I guess, welcome you to try and suggest to do versus moving on to comments that are about the person because that is where you'll get to shame, where you start saying, you know, they're an idiot or what a, what a moron or, you know, say things that adjectives or directed to the person because that is when you're going to lead to shame, which is not motivating to that person making a change, and it's also going to lead to disconnection rather than connection. So it is a challenging space, but it's it's one that I would say is about kind of sharing and focusing on the actual thing you're talking about, vaccines, and trying to encourage a sense of connection and community in why we're coming together to do this and why the importance of doing that beyond just the individual risk at the same time as trying to prevent, you know, words that are going to try and promote shame in someone and trying and words that are going to direct more towards the individual rather than the behaviour. Yeah, that's really great. It's just a great insight to have in mind. And I guess as well, like the tricky thing in Australia is we're still at the level where there aren't actually enough vaccines to go around anyway. A friend of mine just shared her experiences and she's living in Coffs Harbour. She's got a new baby, she's breastfeeding. And so that means that she's pretty limited in the choices that she can have. And because she's not working outside of the house, she's not actually eligible to get the vaccine that she needs at the moment. And Coffs Harbour is going to be on this pilot program where like the vaccine passports from Sydney. So they're beginning getting an influx from a city where all of their vaccines went to in their crisis. And now she doesn't feel protected in her own town. And the people who are vaccinated are getting all these extra freedoms And kind of through no fault of her own, she's in this situation where she's been a bit shamed for not getting vaccinated, no option to get the vaccine and put in danger from people who are coming from the place that got their vaccine. So it's like a really like, oh, my God. Absolutely. And that's what I mean by we're all in the same storm but in different boats and we don't sometimes take a step back and consider that everyone's experience of this pandemic and of being able to access a vaccine is different. And there's, you know, many different reasons for that. But one of those is sometimes people have wanted to access it but haven't been able to. And we have to allow space and compassion for that because that is some people's lived experience of of this time. I'm seeing it in Melbourne now even, you know, I think today's our first day where we can have picnics. And you can, you know, if you're both double-vaxxed, I think, you know, you can have five people at a picnic. But I'm noticing with my friends, it's now the first time where we're actually getting an understanding of who is double vax and who isn't. We've never really had the clear conversation before like that. And there's never been a clear, you know, reason, I guess, to to know who's double vax and not. And the people who are only single vax in my group, it's not because they were hesitant or anything. They just, you know, I was, I'm double vax, but I, as a psychologist, I got access a lot earlier than everyone else. And so whereas other people are having to wait the gap between this and for AstraZeneca, waiting at quite a large gap, people who got Pfizer for many very different reasons have a shorter gap. And so everyone's experience of this is different, let alone if you live in minority community or English is a second language and you haven't had access to, to an understanding of, of these vaccines. I often, to have, I often try and step back and think, what would someone's experience of this pandemic been like? who 
didn't have the privilege I've had of my education because I found it so hard to navigate this, like which vaccine is better, which, you know, it goes from take this one, don't take this one, you're in a phase one, phase B, you know, lockdown, stage four, phase two. You know, it's it's so complex, the 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 risks that we're trying to navigate now and these and navigating risks is difficult and it's a privilege often to have had access to an education to understand the way that this information is distributed, which often is very, you know, complex and politically charged and and not really easily accessible to people outside of those who speak English. So I think we have to stand back before we judge and think really about uh, trying to have some kindness and compassion for people's different experience of, of this time and listen and understand someone's experience and understand their reasons for, you know, not being vaxxed before you, I guess, make assumptions and, and therefore come from a place of maybe defence or attack. Absolutely. Well, I guess we've got one more question, which we ask all our guests, and it might not be an easy one to answer, but I guess if you could try to distill everything that you've learned and everything that you teach or share down to one core essence, what do you think that one thing would be? I would say I've learnt that as a people to live to live our lives, we should learn to feel our feels, control the controllables, and walk our why, and walk, walk what is meaningful and important to us, and learn to make space for the really uncomfortable and difficult emotions that that will naturally come up as we try and do something that matters. Oh, what a great summary. Mm, That's beautiful. beautiful. Thank you so much. No worries. I, I, yeah, luckily I've been writing Instagram posts. I've been getting better at <laughs> distilling things down to, yeah. short, to short phrases. <laughs> beautiful. I really hope you enjoyed our conversation with Chris. I'm grateful that Joe and I got the opportunity to speak with him and really get into some subjects that have been on both of our minds a lot lately. And we would really love to hear your feedback. So please definitely reach out to us. We're on Facebook as the Flow Artist Podcast. And you can also find us on Instagram. I'm Ryan Loves Yoga and Joe is Garden of Yoga. Send us a message. For our next episode, we're speaking with Dr. Catherine Schmitz about her upcoming book, Moving Through Cancer. It's an evidence-based resource about the benefits of exercise when used alongside regular cancer treatment. As a cancer survivor myself, this is a subject I'm very passionate about, so I can't wait for you to hear our conversation. Our theme song is Baby Robots by GoSoul and is used with permission. Check it out at gosoul.bandcamp.com. Thank you so, so much for listening. Joe and I really appreciate you spending your precious time with us. Aroha nui. Big, big love. <laughs>